I'm Jennifer Grayson, and this is the Uncivilized Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Uncivilized Podcast. I'm Jennifer Grayson here in Los Angeles, bringing you the stories of people who have left behind our urbanized, industrialized, modern world to create radically different lives in the 21st century. Today's guest is someone who has taken that idea to the extreme, environmental activist Rob Greenfield. He's here to talk about his latest adventure, growing and foraging 100% of his food for an entire year from his hand-built tiny house in urban Orlando, Florida, of all places. I spoke with Rob this week. I was actually not planning on bringing you this episode for a couple of weeks, but given that we're now in the full throes of holiday consumerism, I thought this would be the perfect episode to bring you uh, the story of someone who very much grew up in that world in Wisconsin and uh, tell you his story of what it's like when you really step outside that consumerist system. Okay. Before we jump in, please, if you're enjoying the episode so far, leave us a rating and even better, a review on iTunes. There are big plans in the works for the show, and that's really going to help our cause. I would be so grateful. Uh, I want to thank you in advance for listening. If you are interested in how I'm uncivilizing in my own life here in Los Angeles, check out my Instagram page. That's at jennifergrayson1. If you have any guest suggestions, shoot them to my email, info at jennifergrayson.com. That is it for me, and I will be back soon with a new episode. I'm here with adventurer and environmental activist Rob Greenfield, whose extreme projects have ranged from biking across the U.S. on a bamboo bicycle for sustainability three times, to dumpster diving in thousands of grocery store dumpsters to raise awareness about food waste and hunger, to wearing 30 days worth of trash to create a visual of how much trash just one American creates. On November 11th, he launched his latest project, Food Freedom, where he will be living in a 100-square-foot tiny house and growing and foraging 100% of his food for an entire year. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. When I hear that bio, sometimes I think, man, I sound crazy. Really? Because when I read that bio, I think, wow, that is just an amazing amount of inspirational things that you have accomplished. Well, you know, diving into dumpsters, wearing garbage, when you put it a little bit differently, it sounds a little bit out there. you know, yes, it does a little bit. And I got to say, when I was watching your videos, uh, especially the one of you wearing the garbage, I kept thinking, he, if I saw you walking down the street, I probably would, <laughs> honestly, I probably would think you were uh, really crazy. But then you hear what an incredibly brilliant, accomplished speaker you are, and you realize, well, maybe I'm misjudging some of the crazy people I see walking down the street <laughs> oh, we, in I'm LA. Sure. I'm sure we are. I'm definitely sure we are. We make quick judgments based on our societal norms. And uh, I mean, by now we know that our societal norms are just not correct. Right. Right. Agreed. And we're going to dive into that today. But before we get started, so I just have to ask you, just because this has such a significance for me, and this is going to seem like a random question, but so you launched on 11.11. I noticed that you have 111 possessions. To your name. Huh. So do ones have a special significance in your life? No, 
No, just just you just happen to see a combination of a couple different numbers. Oh, okay, that's so weird. I'm seeing ones everywhere lately, and I know maybe some of my audience can offer some ideas as to why that's happening. Maybe we're just meant to talk today, Rob. Interesting. No, I chose eleven eleven uh, because originally it was going to be around November first. I didn't want it to be on midterms, which was November sixth, just because I, you know, I just wanted to steer clear of that media wise. Um, so just kind of chose eleven eleven, and I did choose it because I thought that sounds lucky. So I'll I'll go with that. And it, and you do have one hundred and eleven possessions, is that right? Not currently. So okay. I had a hundred. I had a hundred eleven possessions for two years. Well, actually, I started off with a hundred eleven possessions. Once I downsized everything to fit in my backpack, and of course, you know, from day to day, that could go from one hundred thirteen down to a hundred five, as I was losing or breaking things or gaining new small things. Um, but for two years, I had around one hundred eleven possessions. But since I settled in Orlando. A year ago, and built this tiny house, and I'm growing and foraging 100% of my food. That's meant getting shovels and uh, you know a tool to open up coconuts and uh, you know bowls to store huge amounts of food and jars and such. So my possessions have gone up drastically uh, since beginning this new project. And do you have a refrigerator for storage? Is that one of your possessions? I have a freezer, a deep chest freezer. Um, did a lot of research on food storage and found that, you know, unexpectedly, a deep chest freezer is one of the most sustainable ways to store large quantities of food. It, every, on average, it uses about $3 worth of electricity per month, um, which you can use that amount canning in a very short period of time. So um, I was pretty surprised to learn that it's one of the most sustainable ways to store large quantities of food. Wow. And so, and what about the electricity? Are you, do you have a solar panel or is, yeah. is that part of your project or are you just doing the food and then not worrying about the grid right now? So my goal during this time was to live off the grid in this tiny house. So the tiny house is a hundred square feet and it's made out of about 99% repurposed uh, or secondhand materials. And so, of course, my goal was to live completely off the grid. I did live off the grid in my tiny house in San Diego in 2015, 2016. But um, this project where I'm growing and foraging 100% of my food, I mean, it's just a whole nother level of time, of energy, uh, and then storage of food in a climate that's not designed for food storage. Florida is a very hot climate, so hot climates are not ideal for food storage. Um, and so because of all that, I ended up deciding not to be completely off the grid to make it just more manageable. Uh, it's doable, but I, 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 like to, I like to look at the limits of things. I push the limits, but I try to not push the limits to the point of exhausting myself and being becoming uh, too incapable of then not just doing the project, but also producing videos, writing a book, you know, and all of that combined. Right, right. And I want to get into how you're actually managing all that time. But before that starts, I, I just would love to go through just a list of some of the questions I know that our listeners probably have about the Food Freedom Project and also my two daughters. I went, I told them about your project this morning and they had some really interesting questions for you. So can we just kind of go through the project? Absolutely. Okay, great. Yeah. So. First of all, I have to ask, why did you choose Orlando, especially if it's not ideal for food storage? 
I chose Orlando because I want to live in a place where I feel like I can have a very positive impact. So I don't have a desire to be in a, well, first of all, I want to be in a place where I can have an impact, which, which right now means being in a city more so than being out in the countryside. So that's why I'm an urbanite, I guess you could say. I've never used that word before, I don't think. Um, an urbanite at this point, because it's media is able to easily come in uh, and do stories, and I'm able to do class, teach classes, and there's also a good community for me to learn from. And then, um, so Orlando in particular is a place where it's at a state where I believe that a lot of positive change can happen and will happen here, uh, but it needs it. So it's not, you know, it's not Berkeley that already has a ton going on, but it's not rural, you know, Alabama where it'd be hard to get people to listen. It's somewhere in the middle where I feel like I can have a really positive impact. Right. And the just I got to say the juxtaposition of you just next to Disney World, the <laughs> the most consuming place on earth, uh, is pretty interesting too. I feel like maybe yeah. you should be an extension of Epcot or they should just funnel visitors from Disneyland or Disney World to you. I, you know, I don't even acknowledge that they exist. Uh, I've, I've been in Orlando for a year and um, I live about 30 miles. They're, they're the south of Orlando some and I'm up here just a little bit north of downtown and it's as if it doesn't even exist. Never even crosses my mind. Yeah, I, I didn't realize it was so spread out. That's really far. 30 very, as well. It's a very spread out city. But Orla but Disney itself, I think, is actually in Kissimmee, not Orlando, I believe. Okay. We'll make a note of that for our, for our listeners. <laughs> uh, so, okay, let's dive back in. So tell me, what are you growing and what are you foraging? Yeah. Well, just to be clear, I mean, people, people have a hard time wrapping their head around the, the idea of growing and foraging 100% of my food. When, when we say that, I literally mean 100%. There are no exceptions. Like Barbara King Solver's book, Animal Vegetable Miracle, um, they had their exceptions. There's zero exceptions. My salt, my oil, uh, no grocery stores, no restaurants, no taking a nibble at a party, no gifts of food from others, no going to someone else's garden and eating from their garden, literally growing and foraging 100% of the food. Okay, so I have to ask, so what are you doing for oil? And what are you doing so, for salt? Um, so salt was far easier than I ever imagined. All you have to do to get salt is evaporate ocean water. Oh, yeah, well, of course. How far are you from the ocean? Um, about 50 miles, so an hour drive, and uh, I just pair going to the ocean with the desire to be outside and be at the beach, so it's like, it's not that I'm just using the gas to for food, but it's also at the same time, you know, my go, getting out, immersing, being a part of nature. Um, so you're not biking but, on your bamboo bike to the ocean, you're actually, yeah, yeah okay. I, I originally thought I would do that, but it's just a bit too much. Yeah, you got to um, conserve calories, Rob, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, and also just a matter of time. I mean, it's, this is a, it's a very time-consuming thing when, I mean, over time it becomes less time-consuming as you learn everything, as you have routines and rhythms, but I've jumped into this pretty hard. Um, as far as oil, I've been not using oil yet, uh, and but I'm making coconut oil, which is also quite easy to make relatively. Um, I've just been eating a lot of coconuts, which have a lot of oil in them, and I've been eating fish, uh, mullet, which is actually a very oily fish. 
So I've just been getting my oil naturally through there. And then as far as like, I just haven't been able to fry anything. I just like saute things in water. Okay. So you're fishing. Uh, sounds like you've got the oil. I would love to hear about how you make that coconut oil. Maybe you can just, uh, do you have a link to it on your website, how you make coconut oil? Have you done a video for that yet? I haven't done it, but to sum it up, uh, there's two different ways of doing it. One way is I have an oil press, which uh, you simply take the mature coconut out of the shell. Um, you dry it a little bit, and then you just put it through the press, and um, it basically gives you a coconut oil. Um, there's a slight bit more to it than that. And then as far as the, the the other way to do it, which requires no special tool, is you just blend the coconut, uh, water, and meat, and then you put it in the fridge. The oil comes to the top, and then you cook that oil in a pot, which like basically burns off some of the particulate matter, and then you have oil. Now that oil is um, heated, so it's not a cold pressed oil, um, but that's. The simple, that's a simple way to make it that requires no special tools. Oh, amazing. I'm going to try that. I think my daughters will get a kick out of that. So, mm -hmm. all right. What about caffeine? So I, I don't have any caffeine in my life. No coffee. Coffee doesn't grow here. And if it, even if it did, it takes time to establish coffee plants. Um, however, there is a plant here that is the North American yerba mate. It is called... Um, uh, the the genus and species is Ilex vomitoria, I believe, but I'm blanking on the common name at the moment. Um, but it grows, it's often used as a landscaping plant, and it also grows more wild here as well. And um, I have yet to, I'm not a big caffeine guy, so I haven't uh, I haven't gone out and, and foraged it yet. I've been meaning to. Um, the vomitoria so. part sounds a little unnerving. Does, does oh, that okay. It's Yapan holly, and the reason it's vomitoria is I believe that the native people would use it in ceremonies to purge themselves. And so by drinking extreme amounts of it, that's what would create vomiting. Um, but in the you know, in moderation when it's not used as a per uh, you know for purging, then it's just like your it is your it's basically, North America's yerba mate, same high as yerba mate. Wow, fascinating. So did you did you do a lot of foraging classes? Did you study with people in preparation for this? What was the prep like? Yeah, well, so basically my plan was that I moved to Orlando December 17th of 2017. And my plan was that I had six months. So around June 1st is when the year would start. Um, that ended up being majorly postponed because... Uh, well, I started a lot of projects um, that were related around food freedom, helping other people to grow food. Um, and those were very time consuming. So it ended up being November. So that was more like 11 months of prep. And during that time, I was learning a ton. I took foraging classes with two local guys, Green Dean and Andy Firk, um, visited a lot of farms, a lot of gardens, watched a lot of videos online read books, um, read a lot of articles. but And then there's also groups, uh, local groups, Orlando Permaculture. So I met a lot of permaculturists here. Um, so yeah, I just absorbed as much knowledge as I could. And the key was to absorb the most important knowledge and focusing on what is most important here in Orlando rather than like broader. But what, what do I need to know here to be successful in this project? 
So what, what did you learn? What was the most important thing to know in, or, in Orlando? Well, of course, I think the most important thing is a staple crop. You know, um, the calories, I think, are what most people who try to, you know, be fully self-sustaining have a hard time having enough calories. Um, and so for me, what I'm doing is um, there's cassava or yuca. Um, which is a, which is, no, that's an annual, not a perennial, but that's a staple crop that's very easy to grow, very drought tolerant. And then also lots of sweet potatoes, which also grow extremely well here. Um, and then I, I, uh, forage for the wild yam and amazingly the wild yams here, uh, those are Dioscoria alata can be 160 pounds. One yam can be 160 pounds. Wow. So just for size, can you give us a comparison? Well, I'm 154 pounds right now, so bigger than me, one yam. Uh, a, a deer, a six, 160 pounds is actually a good-sized deer. I think a buck, like a good-sized male deer, is like under 200 pounds typically. So that's a good-sized deer. <laughs> oh, my God. So how do you – are you pu actually pulling yams that big out of the ground? I've never found one that big. Oh, okay. Um, I pulled a 25 pounder out uh, the other day and it took me an hour. Um, now you could, it could be a lot faster, but I was trying to pull the whole thing out intact without breaking it just partly because, you know, I wanted to see what it looks like as one entity rather than a bunch of small chunks. Um, but, and that also took an hour because it was right next to a golf course and not only right next to the golf course, but right next to one of the putting greens and so like every time golfers would roll up, I'd have to like go hide behind the bushes so that <laughs> I wasn't disturbing them and they wouldn't report me because um, not that I would normally care about that, but it is a yam stash. I mean, I think there's hundreds or even a thousand pounds of yam in the ground right there. And it's only three miles on a bike path from my house. So it's like my perfect little calorie bank. And so I just don't want to risk um being you know, a crazy yam guy put in prison. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I got to ask though, but being so close to the putting green, are you concerned about, I know you can't be super picky about everything, but it, are you concerned about pesticide? Yeah. You know, um, it's kind of an interesting thing. That's a, that's an obvious thing to think about. I personally, my way of doing things is I don't worry too much about the chemicals, uh, and the reason is, is because we're exposed to it to such a great level that it's hard to avoid it completely. And to avoid it completely kind of requires a, this mindset of like fear and avoidance of everything. Whereas I want to be able to live freely in the world that, that exists and, um, have a positive impact at the same time. And so, you know, Put, what that means is that I do expose myself to um, some chemicals for possibly. I mean, I, I, the reality is, is that just living in a modern house means you're breathe for most people means you're breathing a lot of chemicals uh, that are coming off those walls, the carpets, the, the pillows and everything. Um, so I've minimized that drastically. And so in some ways, I probably expose myself in ways that others don't. But but the reality is that I drastically have decreased my exposure in other ways. Um, and so I think it all kind of balances out. And then the other part of it is that 
I kind of have a, a pyramid of the way that I look at things and, and I'm on the bottom of that period. It kind of goes like earth community, uh, other species and me at the bottom. And so harvesting those yams is no question, sust- extremely sustainable in no way harms other species. And so it could possibly harm me, but that's fine. And that's the way that I have my spectrum of, of the way that I look at things like that. It's so interesting. That seems to be a theme this season. Everyone I'm, I'm speaking with so far has said it's they, they started this journey really concerned about themselves, you know, like what kind of pesticides am I consuming, eliminating plastics? And it really became this greater mission. You know, it became something larger than themselves. Is that, is that what you're saying here? That it's yeah. really beyond you? I mean, it's beyond me because I'm not delusional enough to believe that I'm that important, that I need to be paying attention to everything, how it affects me. I mean, that's the kind of our current you know, human mindset is that we are the center of the human race and we are the center of the universe. But the reality is that, you know, we're just not that important, any of us as individuals. And I'm not saying that to like put myself or anyone else down, but more just like try to always look at things from the far bigger picture than than myself. Right. Yeah, I say that to people all the time too here in LA because you see a lot of people who of course have had their mind open to eating organic food and and want to buy the best food for their children, but they get so fixated on it that they'll go to the market and buy packaged organic more macaroni and cheese and not buy like a local I'll see them at the farmer mar- farmer's market and walk up to a farmer and say is this organic? And they'll say, well, no, I don't have organic certification, but we don't use spray because organic certification is pretty hard to get. And they'll say, oh, sorry, you know, and then like mm-hmm. not buy those products. And I'm like, well, the air pollution in Los Angeles alone is far greater concern uh, than whatever is in your local farmer's, you know, vegetable crop that day. And you're better off supporting the local farmer. But, you know, anyway, well, that's I digress. I, I I mean, the digress is an important thing. What what I see today is like a majority of this movement is a whole bunch of pigeonholing where we want to label ourselves something, whether it's zero waste, vegan, plastic free. And by having that, that label, it gives us this sense of security and safety. Um, but the reality is, is that there is no separation of anything in ecosystems um, and in the world. And what that does is it allows us to live in this sort of delusional state where that label gives us that comfort and that safety and allows us to create this separationist mindset. But the reality is, is that we just can't separate all these things. Uh, it is all deeply interconnected and, and all those issues are completely interconnected. Right. Right. And I, I want to delve into that. And I really want to delve into how you came to view the world this way. But before we do that, let me, I just have a couple other questions about what you're doing now in food freedom, and then maybe we can move beyond. Does that sound good? Sure. Great. Okay. So just because we were talking about pesticides, what about water? Are you foraging water? So I had this idea where I would, I would try to, you know, be off the grid for all the water that I drank or for the whole year. So in a sense, foraged water. That's a, you know, you don't usually use that term foraged water, but harvesting rainwater would be sort of like foraging water or collecting it from a lake or a river. Um, 
So I had the I had the the idea that I would like to do that, but it was never my real intention because I'll be traveling during this. Um, I probably will take some some extended travels, like two week road trip type things, where I'm visiting farms and um, communities that are working on food sovereignty and such. And so the reality of carrying that much water is just um, it's kind of limiting and doesn't necessarily serve the higher purpose of what I'm doing. So for the first, so when I'm here, a hundred percent of the water that I drink is rainwater that I collect off my roof and that I uh, purify. I use a Berkey filter. Um, so probably at this point, ninety-eight percent of the water that I've consumed is water that I have indeed foraged. But I'm not limiting myself to. But I do have to pay careful attention that I would not drink for some from some system that doesn't add nutrients. So I'm very, um, very. Uh, conscious about that. Sorry, explain that. What do you mean? Well, because you so don't some, want nutrients from an outside source because you've pledged to source all of your own? Because I'm growing and foraging 100% of my food, if I drank some water that had added vitamins, like that'd be kind of cheating. Oh, interesting. But doesn't that only happen with bottled water? No. So a lot of these reverse osmosis machines, they also sell like systems that after they do the reverse osmosis, it adds nutrients back into it because everything is removed um right so, so you essentially have sterile water without yeah, adding sterile, those back. right yeah and so they do like i you know some i don't think most of the machines do this but i know that i have seen systems that that do add stuff to it okay got it so no no fortified water uh and let, oh, you know what I would love you to do? Can you just run down a typical day of eating? Is there a typical day so far? Yeah, fairly typical right now. And I'm, I'm actually making, I keep a running list of every single food that I've consumed. And, um, and I'm going to have that up online. But uh, and by every, I don't mean every bite, but every single <laughs> different species of food. Okay. So my main staples are sweet potato, cassava, or yuca. Um, and yam, and then uh, seminal pumpkin, papaya uh, is another staple, um, seminal peas or southern peas, um, and then let's see, salt from the ocean, coconut, a lot of coconut, and then mango, star fruit, and oranges have been my main fruits, uh, all from, those are all foraging from trees. Um, and then greens, a lot of perennial greens, moringa, katuk, different perennial spinaches, cranberry hibiscus, roselle, purslane, chaya, sweet potato greens, and then different herbs, African blue basil, Cuban oregano, holy basil, garlic chives, uh, mint, rosemary, lemongrass. Um, so that, and then, oh, of course, and then fish, mullet is the fish that I've been eating. Um, mushrooms. I've been harvesting some mushrooms um, and different, some different foraged green. A lot of d different foraged greens. Also, beauty berry. Um, so that that right there that I've just named off does make up a vast majority of the food that I've consumed over the last seventeen days. Wow, and that sounds more like a more diverse diet than most people have consumed probably in the last five years. <laughs> It's been fairly diverse, so, and it will only get more diverse as time goes on. Um, I, I launched into this project so busy that I was just kind of scraping by the first couple of days. 
And so I'll preserve more food. My fall garden will be very abundant and I'll have a lot of annuals in there. Um, so it will get more and more diverse. I would imagine over the next year that I will probably eat 300 to 500 different foods if I had to guess. Wow. And so did you talk to a nutritionist before and did you, did you look at traditional cultures for inspiration on how to best combine all these foods so that you stay properly nourished? So I, um, I wasn't going to do the doctor appointment thing just because of the, because it costs money and I try to live on pretty minimal amount of money. But uh, sort of at the last minute, a production company wanted to make a documentary about this project. And so a pretty, pretty you know, central part of that documentary, uh, of any documentary like this would be, you know, the health change. So I actually did end up going in and getting a blood test. Um, and I haven't seen the results yet, but I will compare. Uh, I, I did the whole like deep blood test of the, the, the micro vitamins, micronutrients or whatever they're called. And so that will be a very interesting comparison. It, it, it really covers everything. And I'll take, I took that uh, blood test and I'll do it again at the end. Um, and then as far as, you know, I haven't had a, I haven't gone into like the whole food pairing element of thing. I kind of looked at things from the simple element of, okay, I've got a great calorie source. I've got good protein source. I've got plenty of uh, vegetables that have uh, a wide array of vitamins and minerals. And I look at that and say, that's probably enough. I tend to think that humans way overcomplicate food. Um, and so I think that just looking at that basic spectrum that I probably will have, that I'll be meeting my needs. Right. Right. And I know a lot of people listening to what you're doing would, of course, the first thing they'll say is, well, where's all the protein? But it, you know, it, especially when you're eating fish and all of the diverse plants and everything that you're eating, it's, um, it's funny. I think we kind of focus on one nutrient to, uh, to the detriment of just having a diverse diet. Yeah, we definitely do focus on that. And that's that whole thing about the way that we look at things today as this such a black and white thing where we separate everything out. But, um, you know, I just look at things as much broader. And um, also to answer your earlier question of like, did I get my sort of my ideas from looking back at other cultures? And yeah, I mean, a, a lot of what I'm eating is staple crops. Um, so Seminole pumpkin was a, is a state was a staple for uh, the Native Americans living here. Right, um, the Seminoles. The Seminoles. Right. And so that's been grown for 500 years. It's an amazing food. It can it preserves for a year on the shelf, not refrigerated, um, which is just amazing. Um, of course, uh, Yucca or cassava is a staple of a lot of the island countries and I think parts of South America. Um, pigeon peas, which I haven't eaten yet but will be soon, also called gandules, is a staple. Um, and fish, of course, is a staple to a lot of regions. So, I mean, yeah, I definitely look at, I, I really, I think the healthiest cultures on earth tend to have fairly simple and consistent uh, diets. And I think that is, for me personally, the times that I see my body being the absolute healthiest is by generally eating 
the same thing over and over for an extended period of time with variation like the greens can change but the calorie and the protein basically are the same with then some variation of the vegetables that's when I find my digestion and my body to be performing at the absolute best. Right. And you're also very much tied to your environment and what comes from that local place as opposed to just eating things from all over the world that maybe you weren't adapted to eat, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, it's been very nice to be connected to every single bite that I've put into my body. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. Well, so let's, let's go back a little bit now that we've got a pretty great overview of what you are doing now. So I know you do a lot of extreme projects uh, and you tell this very compelling story, which in your TED talk, which I will post about how this journey, you really went from being basically a booze hound in college, sorry, but I'm kind of paraphrasing you, who didn't really care about anything except making money to, to this. And I'm just wondering, so were you, but just to go back further, were you this extreme as a child? Like, did you, when you took on something, was it all in? Yes and no. Yes and like yes. I would I would say I always have been sort of extreme with different things. So, to I mean, to give you an example, like Beanie Babies were the craze when I was a kid. I'm 32, so when I was in fifth grade, I think Beanie Babies were just you know at that's when they started their their peak. I don't think they had peaked out, but they had really started. And I had at the peak of my Beanie Baby collection, I had 700 Beanie Babies. Wow. Which for a kid is like pretty much probably 99th percentile of Beanie Baby collectors. Just like thousands of dollars of Beanie Babies. Yeah. And we were poor. I, I don't even know how we managed that. We sunk our money in the Beanie Babies. Um, and so I collected. I, that's what I did as a kid. When we collected, we wanted to collect everything, um, whether it was Pogs or having the complete set of the Marvel cards or uh, magic the gathering or so and then um i was extreme like i liked ex i was into the idea of extreme sports and i always was trying to push things um you know could i swim across this lake or you know could i run this far how long could i hold my breath underwater so i just you know just coming to mind like random things that i always tried to push to my extreme and then, you know, when I was in college, you know, I wanted to be a millionaire. So, you know, not just wealthy, but very wealthy. So, yeah, I've always been, I actually have always been an extreme person. Yeah. Wow. It's amazing that you're so aware of that. So do you have, it's so interesting because you said, you know, you said you were poor. So tell, tell me about that because it's, it sounds like you also had so much at the same time. So at least in terms of consumer items. So it's really interesting. Can you tell me more about like where you're from and what your family was like growing sure. up? Sure. Yeah. So it was my mom and me and three siblings. So it was the four of us kids and my mom. We lived in a two bedroom uh, duplex that my mom rented. Um, and then there was also, we. Ha so yeah, we had two bedrooms and then there was this like little room above the stairs that had like a very, you know, slanted roof. And that was our Lego room. Um, it wasn't really big enough to be a bedroom, but it was a, our Lego room. But and so the three boys of us, the three of us boys slept together in one room. And then my mom and my sister slept in another room. Once my brother Joe got old enough, we turned that Lego room into his little tiny bedroom. Um, so my mom made about $15,000 a year to support us for kids. But, um, 
you know, none of the none of the dads. There were three dads. Uh, none of them were really helpful. I don't think very helpful. So you're saying um, you had your siblings are were technically half siblings. Half. Okay. Yeah, my my oldest brother Joe was half. My brother Levi is a whole brother, and then my little sister Becky is a half sister. And um, but. So we got a lot of help from the government. My mom got food stamps, which meant we always had enough food. Uh, we never didn't have enough food. And then, you know, she got rent assistance. And um, we, yeah, I mean, extremely fortunate to have lived in a society that helped us out um, and helped me to, I think that a lot of that did help me to stay out of trouble, stay on a good path and become a, you know, a productive person, helpful member of society. Um, and then also my aunt and my grandpa helped us a lot. So we had support in that way. So like the reason that we had all those beanie babies is because my aunt, uh, I would say that's probably where they came from. She didn't have any kids, so she really supported us. Um, and, uh, so basically, you know, ultimately I look back at what I was doing with this, like uh, we were consumers. My mom was a consumer. I was a consumer. And I know both of us, what we were doing is we were filling holes in ourselves, like trying to fill this void. For my mom, she grew up in a scenario where she didn't have a whole lot. And so she created an unsatiable uh, thirst for stuff. And for me, because I was poor and I looked at the other kids and thought they had more than me, um, for me to have stuff was my way of like proving my worth. Uh, in a way. And so like that Beanie Baby collection was my way of like creating worth. And that's what it all came down to is like the clothes that I was wearing and all of that, my my removal of, of from the bigger picture of caring about, you know, the earth more and stuff really came down to just trying to fit in and be normal and and have that really sense of worth in a society that bases its worth more on stuff and money and, you know, nice houses and cars and such. Right. And it sounds like you had that value system all the way through college, because as you said, you wanted to be a millionaire. That was your big, big goal, right? As a young adult. Yeah. I, so, and so when yes. did that, when did that shift? And I, I, I find this such a fascinating story because maybe we'll talk more off mic about this, but I actually come from a similar sort of background. And so I've, I've had sort of a similar journey too, uh, to changing my whole mindset about materialism. And, and I'm just wondering when you, this awareness happened to you, happened for you. Yeah. So I do want, I do want to say I wasn't blind. Like my mom raised us caring. Um, well, like obviously, we were... because look at you're turned into an amazing human being. So, yeah, I mean like, so like right now I have in my hands this journal that I picked up when I was back at my mom's house two years ago I just asked her if she had a notebook I could use because I always like to use used stuff. And so she she gets me a notebook and because she saves a lot of stuff, um, it happened. It turns out to be my journal from when from the first entry is September 7th, 1994. So I was eight years old and um, the like the the uh, the entry from September 16th, 1994 is what happens if oil gets in oceans and lakes. What do you think? Yes, feathers will stick together. <laughs> so, and on the front, there's a sticker that my mom probably put on there that says, save our home. And it has a picture of the earth. So 
she definitely raised us caring. She's always cared about those things. Um, but ultimately what happened was I got away from all that because I was overpowered by the desire to fit into American society. And so that foundation was there, but I did get away from that in high school and college. And then what happened was once I got out of college, um, it was 2011, I was in San Diego. And what happened was I started to watch a lot of documentaries and read a lot of books, and they just really started to wake me up to the reality of my existence. So I didn't have any overnight epiphany, no, you know, you know, single moment of enlightenment or anything like that. I just started to educate myself. And what happened was I realized, okay, my life is destroying all the things that I love because I still love the outdoors. But now I realized, okay, my globalized, industrialized life, all of my actions, the food I'm eating, the water I'm drinking, the car that I'm driving, the gas that I'm putting into my car, the cheap crap that I'm buying, the trash that I'm making, the electricity that I'm using, uh, everything that I'm doing for the most part is causing destruction. And I just said to myself, I don't want to be a destroyer. That's, that's not the life that I want. I've been tricked. I've been tricked by corporations that to tell me that I need this stuff to be happy. And that's not true. I know that's not true. So it was a matter of, I didn't want anyone to get the best of me and I didn't want to be tricked anymore. I wanted to live a truthful life, so I stuck, you know, I set out to get to the bottom of it and to to be better than the corporate advertising and uh, better than these uh, social stigmas and to to seek truth. So for me, you know, as much as like trying to live a more environmentally friendly way, sustainable way, simple way, it's also about living as a deep level of truth and um, and not living a delusional life. Right. And it seems like to do that, though, you've had to really step outside the system completely. It's interesting because you're, you're partly in the system. I mean, obviously, we're talking on Skype right now, and you have a social media account, and you're doing a media tour. And so you're partly in the world that we're living. But it, I, I guess what I'm, I'm not even really asking a question, but <laughs> I, I guess what, the struggle I have is that I'm aware of all these things, too. And yet, I'm still living in a city. My husband has a job. We are struggling to live this more connected life, but we're still in the system. And so every day is a constant struggle of people not buying my kids plastic shit. And, you know, schools not teaching, I don't know, the westernized narrative we've all grown up with. And so it sounds like you really had to step outside the system. Do you feel that way? In many ways, I have stepped outside of the system. And in some ways that I'm, I'm still in it. Um, one reason that I'm in it is because to I think the best way for me to change it is to be by being in it um, rather than removing myself from it completely and, you know, going out and living in the country. But also I do want to be here. Uh, I, you know, I want, I am a very social being and I do want to be around a lot of people and my mission really is people oriented. So all that means staying in it. Um, and you know, the other part is that I've always been an entertainer uh, as well. That's like one of the things that gives me a purpose is, is like, you know, getting a reaction out of people. That's the reality of my personality. Um, so I'm very much in it, but also very removed. I don't have a single, no credit card, no bank account, no car, no driver's license. Uh, I got rid of all of my identification except just a passport 
and a birth certificate, um, no bills to my name. Uh, so I'm very much outside of the system in many ways. You don't, pay, you don't pay taxes because of your no, income, right? Yep. I've made a personal commitment to always make less than the federal poverty threshold, not to simulate poverty in any way, but to you know live simply. And also because I've you know, made a personal commitment to not pay federal taxes because I don't want to, I'm, I'm not paying for all these things that they're doing with that money. Instead, I've basically given myself nearly a 100% tax. And what I, what that means is that hundred percent of my media income. So I've done a couple of shows with discovery channel, my first book, um, and every other book or TV show that I do in the future, 100% of that is donated directly to nonprofits. It's always in the contracts. I'm not paid. It's just a donation to nonprofits that are doing work that is beneficial for society, that you know our tax dollars are going disproportionately into. So instead, I have just created a way to, to tax myself in a way that I see as what is more beneficial to, the, to people and other species rather than putting money into things that are more for corporate interests and government interest. Right, right. And I, I will say we're running out of time, but you have a fascinating post on your website that I'm going to link to that de really delves into that choice of how you've chosen to structure your life around money or, or lack of it, I should say. And also how there are all these fascinating links to our own mortality. And there's the, you know, the whole question to get into about ha not having health insurance um, and I guess it really gets back to this idea you have of, of not placing so much emphasis on your own life. Well, you know, that's the interesting is that right? thing. Yes, it is. Um, now I'm in no way saying that I've lost all ego and that I don't consider myself <laughs> important and things like that. Yeah, of course. But, but I have drastically decreased that. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, so here's the interesting thing that I've found is that when you make a change, what you find is that there's other things that change that you never thought of. So, for example, when I got rid of my car, there was the obvious things like I would get better exercise, I'd be outside more, I'd save a lot of money. Um, but one of those things that I never imagined was getting rid of a car means you have no trunk. Having no trunk means when you go places, you can't buy as much stuff. So it, you know, it indirectly made me buy a lot stuff, a lot less stuff. Sorry. Um, but, and I just never saw that. And so as far as my realization of my impermanence and, and, you know, that I'm going to die and being okay with that, what's happened was once I got my life down to having 111 possessions and having no bills and debt and no credit card and any of those things, I, I have created a life where if I die right now, there's basically nothing for anyone to take care of. There's not accounts. There's not stuff. Uh, you know, I have a will and my will is basically non-existent when it comes to material possessions or wealth. I have, you know, no savings. I have a thousand dollars or so right now. And all my possessions are like $5,000 or less. So because of that, it's created, I, like I never saw this coming, but it's created this just total ease with the fact that if I die, that is okay because I have created an impermanent life. 
And, and I just never saw that coming. This, this, like now I'm just so much more comfortable. I don't feel anxiety when I think of the, the idea of me dying and such. And that's just not something I ever saw coming. And that's, that's the reality is the further you go down this path, or not even the further, as you go down this path, you just, you just realize you, you, your thoughts start to change in, in ways that you just didn't picture, didn't realize would happen. Right, right. And you start to realize that so much of, of our consumption and our addiction to things is so related to the fact that we think we're going to be here forever. And, you know, we think the planet's going to be here forever. So, yeah, it's really, it's, it's so profound. I, I'm going to hope that you don't die, Rob, because you have, <laughs> you have a really important mission too. <laughs> I mean, we all die eventually, but I hope it's going to be a long time for you because you have a really, really important message to share. Uh, before we go, I just want to ask you a, a big picture question, which is, do you think humanity can change within the limitations of our industrialized capitalistic society? Do, or do you envision that system collapsing? Or do you envision something greater that we're moving toward? What's your vision of the future? Okay, so do I think humans can change? Yes. Do I think that we're going to, to a great enough extent that it will actually be a, you know, a different world, a sustainable world, a, a just world? No. Do I think that we can change within this frame of way we're doing things within this system? No, I don't think that this system we have can be made into a sustainable system, uh, one that can be, by sustained, I mean one that can go on for eternity. Absolutely not. This system will not, cannot keep going on forever. Um, but just in general, even I, the reality of the situation is, yes, I think we, I think it is possible and I think humans could, but do I think we will is a whole different story. And the answer to that is no. I don't believe that human beings are going to turn things around. And I believe that that's going to create some, you know, unfathomable situations. I don't know whether that's within our lifetime or the next lifetimes ahead. If I had to guess, I would say in the next 300 years or less, um, and it could be substantially less than 300 years, I don't know, but within the, I would say with a certain level of, of confidence that in the next 300 years, we're going to see major, uh, you know, major things happening uh, to society. And by that, I mean, it could be many ways, but, you know, probably, you know, massive human deaths in, in the billions. Uh, and, um, the thing is the reason that, and, and again, so I, and I don't think humans are going to turn things around. I think that we're too far deeply ingrained into this system. It's far too complicated. It would take far too co much cooperation, uh, throughout the world. And I think we're already so far along that I don't think that we will. At, at all. I really don't think we will. So why do why try then is kind of the question that people would ask me. That's sort of the next element. And mm -hmm. the way that I look at it is I believe that life matters. I value life, human life, other species life, 
you know, we share this earth with millions of other species. I believe that this, all this life matters. So what's going to happen in 50 years, 100 years, 300 years? All of that is negligible to the fact that I believe that life matters now. And so if I can live in a way that increases the quality of life around me while I'm here on earth, then that is meaningful. So what I don't do is I don't focus on, I focus on the big problems and the little problems at the same time. But what I don't do is focus on solutions that don't solve increasing quality of life now as well. So for example, one of the projects that I currently have is community fruit trees, where we plant uh, fruit trees that are free for anyone to pick from in public places like uh, you know, in front yards, by the sidewalk, businesses, churchyards, uh, public schools, anywhere where anyone can access it. So by doing so, in the immediately, I'm providing food for people, uh, helping with food insecurity, uh, you know, helping create this concept that food doesn't have to be this monetized thing, that food can be free. Planting trees, which are beneficial to air quality and general quality of life. So I'm increasing the quality of life immediately. And then also, on the bigger picture, if we are pulling things off, it also is contributing to that bigger picture of trying to turn the whole thing around because planting trees is an important part of climate change, air quality, Uh, This is a part of food insecurity, which is one of the greatest problems that we face. So I try to find solutions where I'm making life better around me. I'm contributing to the bigger picture of that bigger goal of changing society around completely. But if society doesn't change around completely, then that doesn't matter as far as the success of what I'm trying to do now. And that's, you know, another element of that is I can't clean up all the trash in the oceans, but I can work together with my community to make sure that this lake or river is a beautiful place that we can enjoy and the other species that live there can enjoy. And that is worthwhile because I believe that life matters. And that's what keeps me thinking positively. That's what makes me continue acting. Um, And and that's, that's the way that I try to look at things to be successful as a, a person who wants positive change in the world. Thank you, Rob. This has been such a fascinating conversation. I can't wait to follow you this coming year. Tell us where everyone can follow Food Freedom, where they can get in touch with you if they have any questions. Give us the whole rundown. Sure. So my website's just robgreenfield.org. You can go to robgreenfield.org slash foodfreedom. And that's the the story in particular. And then on social media, uh, the main things I use are Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. If you just type in Rob Greenfield into those, you'll find me. Um, and that's pretty much the way. And if you're in Orlando, Florida, or if you're coming to Florida, um, you can always come and try to volunteer at the garden. I teach free classes and, uh, occasionally give tours of my tiny house and things like that, um, as well. And if you go to my Facebook page, you'll find a group that focuses on Florida in particular. Fantastic. And you can come help pull a hundred plus pound jam (laughs) out of the ground. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you, Rob. This has been so much fun. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher Radio so you don't miss the next one. And please don't forget to leave us a rating and review. If you want to talk more about this episode or have an idea for a future show, head on over to my Instagram page. That's at Jennifer Grayson one. As with every episode, the resources and links for the show are available at jennifergrayson.com, where you can sign up for my newsletter, which comes out once a month. Our theme music is by composer Paul Damien Hogan. That's it for me, and I'll be back soon with a new episode.